For the last several weeks, we have been studying some of Jesus' ministry, his parables and teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we take a pause from that teaching. We'll return to it next week and turn instead to one of Paul's letters from the latter part of our New Testament. As we do, and as I've been reading and studying Paul's letter and some other letters this week, I have been reminiscing a little bit about the lost art of letter writing and the joy of letter receiving, right? That time when you would go out to your mailbox and there might actually be something interesting in there. (laughs) I remember during the two years that I lived overseas that I was a young adult volunteer for the Presbyterian Church. It was before the internet. Uh, I know that's hard for a few of you younger folks to believe. But it was, and, um, and so we used, you might recall those blue airmail letters that you could get. They were already pre-stamped, and it was just uh, a front and a back of a page. And the paper was kind of like a, an ancient Egyptian parchment kind of paper <laughs> that actually made it sort of hard to write on, which seemed ironic. But because it was only the front and back of a page, You really had to think carefully about every word, every phrase that you wanted to include because there was no room to put any additional pages in there. Everything mattered that you wrote. And as you received one in return, everything mattered that you read. Now, I don't know what kind of paper Paul was writing on, but I think in a similar way, we might understand that everything Paul wrote mattered and everything, in this case, that the Thessalonian church read mattered too. And so with that, we're going to turn this morning towards the back of our New Testaments to the book of 1 Thessalonians. That is the letter written to the church in Thessalonica in modern day Greece. And read together the first chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1. Listen to God's word for us this morning. Paul Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you, because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you, And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, 
who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, for you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Bible scholars tell us that the book of 1 Thessalonians, that is, Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, may well be the very first written part of the New Testament. That is, it was written down even before the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written down. And while it comes later in our New Testament, it may well have been written before any of those other letters or epistles of Paul had been written. And if that's true, then it probably means that Paul was writing a letter to a church that maybe was only a few months old, a very new, a very young church. And that church, we know from Paul, is facing resistance, intense persecution even. We might remember, though I had to remind myself, to turn back to Acts chapter 17, earlier in the New Testament, and see that when Paul and Silas went to Thessalonica to preach, to start that young church, they were run out of town. And so this young church is growing up in an environment of intense resistance. And given this precarious beginning, we might expect the church to be struggling or isolating themselves from the wider community so as not to either stir up trouble, like Paul and Silas got into, or to be exposed to other cultures and religions and to get weakened in the process. But instead, we discover a vibrant community, strong in their own faith, and extending a welcome and a witness to others far and wide. Now, is this because they are just uniquely righteous and spiritual? That they're so intelligent or so strong? No. No, Paul says over and over again that their faithfulness is possible because they're rooted and grounded in God the Father and Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's God's work in them and through them, and not of their own initiative alone, that they are thriving now as a community of faith. In reflecting on the evidence of that thriving, Paul says, and I love this phrase, that he is confident of their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you pick up the nouns there? Faith, love, and hope. Does that sound familiar? It sounds to me like 1 Corinthians 13, which we know well. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, Paul wrote. And here again, he uses this triad of faith and love and hope. The theologian John Stott reframes this idea by suggesting that Paul is directing their faith to God, their love towards each other, and their hope towards the future. In other words, these virtues, as others see them lived out, are signs that God's Spirit is at work in them. They show that God is drawing us towards faith in himself, is drawing us outwards towards others in love, and forward towards our hope in Christ's return. Each of these virtues also produces concrete actions in our lives. Faith in God produces good works. Labor of love leads us to work for the well-being of both our neighbors and our enemies. 
And steadfast hope produces the kind of endurance which not only survives in challenging circumstances like theirs, but actually helps them to thrive as well. Paul goes on to applaud the Thessalonians for imitating the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ in their own lives. And I thought a lot about imitating this last week. What does it mean to be an imitator? The truth is, all of us, growing up throughout our lives, are imitating others as we try to figure out how to make our way in the world. Sometimes this is done in a formal way through a mentorship or a role model, but often it's just in the people and ideas and the things that we look to for guidance. I remember when I was a college student studying jazz, I was told by my professors that the best way to get started was to imitate the great masters of jazz, to sit down and listen to, yes, records of the great masters. And so I got some Miles Davis albums, because I was playing the trumpet at the time, and I sat and listened to them over and over again, trying to imitate the style, the technique of Miles Davis. I was trying to be an imitator. Now, of course, we see this in a variety of places. Uh, a young teammate in a sport, for example, might look to older teammates to imitate their skills and their work ethic. I remember growing up as my mom tried to learn how to imitate the perfect pie crust of her mother, my grandmother Ruth. And while there was never a recipe written down, clearly there was a particular way to do it and not to do it. If you wanted the perfect pie crust, you better be a good imitator of someone who knows how to do it. All of us are imitators of others in our lives, and it's worth spending some time thinking about who are we imitating after all? Who is it that we look to to model our lives after? That's a really important decision. And not only is it important to choose who we imitate, but also remember that we have a responsibility in our lives knowing that there are others who are watching us and imitating us as well. In our lives of faith, in our lives as citizens, in our lives in community, in our lives in love. And so we might pause for a moment and reflect on the question, are you living your life as someone who is worth imitating? For the Thessalonians, Paul exclaims, it's because of their faithfulness that these imitators are now being imitated by others in the region. That these who were evangelized by the good news are now the evangelists sharing the good news. Paul reminds them it's not enough just to receive the gospel and pass it on through the words we say. Instead, Jesus' followers are called to model the gospel in the way we live and the ways that we love. Joy, Paul says. I see joy in your lives, this young church in a hard place. I see joy in your lives as you turn from idolatry and turn towards serving a true and living God. If that language sounds familiar this morning, we use similar language in the liturgy of baptism that we just experienced. We're reminded that we're set free from the bondage of sin and death, idolatry, and set towards cleansing and rebirth, serving a true and living God. The great reformer Martin Luther said that idolatry is that to which we give ourselves, or that to which we look for our greatest good. In other words, 
It's the worship or the imitation of people and ideas and stuff that best serve ourselves rather than the common good and the greater good. In the face of a hostile cultural and religious environment, it would have been understandable if that young Thessalonian church chose to remain fiercely isolated, which can lead to a kind of idolatry of religious extremism. We're right, and you're not only wrong, you're evil and ill-intended, so we will condemn you and cut ourselves off from you. And unfortunately, we still see a lot of that kind of perspective in our world today. Not only in our political and cultural realms, but if we're honest, even in our religious communities too. Every week I talk with pastors across town and around the country. Pastors of churches that are conservative or progressive or middle of the road or traditional or whatever label you want to use. Pastors who are increasingly finding that people are leaving their churches. And often because they're mad about something, something that was said or done, something that was not said or not done. And to be fair, yes, everyone should find a community of faith where they are fed and nurtured, where they discover belonging. And not every church is right for every person, and that's why we have so many different flavors of churches. That's a good thing. However, it does seem to me that there is a growing polarization that leads people to reject diversity of thought or expressions of faith and diminishes the witness of the body of Christ as a reconciling and life-transforming force in the world, a world that longs today for peace and community. When it comes to these human-to-human or human-to-divine relationships, already so challenging in their context in Thessalonica and in our context today, We can be misdirected if we pour our energies into cancel culture instead of seeking understanding of one another and our different life experiences and views of the world. The Thessalonians, for example, could have attributed the persecution they experienced as entering into a bad relationship with God through the apostles and then let their faith wane. They could have chosen to close themselves off into an echo chamber of mutual affirmation However, because of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, they realized that that persecution they experienced was not the sign of a bad relationship. It was not a call to vicious divisiveness. It was an invitation to imitate the one who calls us to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile. Last week, we reflected on Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet, and the guest who was underdressed and therefore got kicked out. We talked about what it means to be dressed or to put on the garment or the clothing of the values and virtues of our faith, like the clothing of compassion and kindness, humility, patience, and love. And here we see Paul recognizing and affirming that the Thessalonians have clothed themselves in the warm welcome of hospitality, works of faith, labors of love, and steadfastness of hope. So this morning I want to offer two examples of what that looks like in real life. The first, recognizing that our hearts are breaking over the war in Israel and Palestine these days. A war, of course, that is enormously complicated, complicated to describe, complicated in which to hope and understand and seek peace and reconciliation in that place. 
And in the midst of this time, I discovered this week uh, a kind of warm expression of hospitality, uh, a, a way to lean into those actions motivated by the Spirit. It's a letter that comes from a rabbi, Rabbi Michael Holtzman, who is the rabbi for the Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation in Reston, Virginia. You see, their synagogue every week since 2008 has been hosting on Friday a prayer service for the Muslim community in Reston called the All Dulles Area Muslim Society, or Adams for short. And following Hamas' attack on the state of Israel, and after the fatal stabbing of a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy, the imam of that Muslim community wrote to the rabbi and said, perhaps we should cancel our prayers this week. It seems like emotions might be running too high. And the rabbi, in response to the imam, wrote this letter. Dear Adam's community, on behalf of the Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation, we invite the members of the All Dulles Area Muslim Society to attend prayers at our synagogue building just as you have done every Friday for the past 15 years. Earlier this week, following the Hamas attack on the state of Israel, Imam Muhammad Magid expressed his consolation and sympathy to our community. Andy asked me to consider if your prayers at our synagogue this week might inflame emotions, and so perhaps better to take the week off. After prayer and careful consideration, this invitation is our answer to his generous and compassionate offer. Yes, Imam Magid, in his wisdom and compassion, senses the pain and hurt in the Jewish community, and we appreciate his desire to cause no further suffering. However, we firmly believe that any cessation of our relationship would cause more harm for the following reasons. We do not want to support the notion that the conflict between Israel and the Palestinian people is primarily a conflict between Judaism and Islam. Both of our religions clearly prohibit violence against innocents, the taking of revenge, the holding of hostages. We reject the idea that the Holy Land is meant for believers of only one faith. We affirm the teaching of the Holy Quran, that God created us differently so that we can learn from one another. We understand from the Torah's command to love the neighbor that we must first know the neighbor. And therefore, we are meant to coexist in proximity to one another. Extremists in the Israel-Palestine conflict use the cycle of violence and retribution to prevent the possibility of compromise and solidify the idea that our civilizations will forever be at war. We reject this tribalist worldview and believe that through our small shared prayer space, we demonstrate the greatness of human nobility. Our welcome is rooted in a desire to defeat extremism and the idolatry of vengeance. So this week we welcome you in prayer as we do every week. Now is the time to elevate the universal human experience of grief to set aside our disagreements no matter how well reasoned. Now is our time for healing of souls and we open our spiritual home in the hope that your Friday afternoon prayers will mingle with our Friday Shabbat evening prayers and provide consolation to the brokenhearted in both of our communities. Prayer, after all, is also a time for repentance. 
and we ask for forgiveness that for too long we have devoided, avoided discussing this topic, that we have failed to create a healthy dialogue about this terrible conflict, that we have allowed mistrust, slogans, and stereotypes to fester in our local community, and that we still do not fully see each other's connection to the Holy Land. We commit to returning to these topics after a time of healing. Every week when you come to our synagogue, you remove your shoes for prayer, which you conduct on prayer rugs on the floor. You might not be aware, but it is customary in a Jewish home at the time of mourning that the bereaved remove their shoes and sit on a low stool or on the floor. This week we seek comfort in the presence of each other and the mourners of Jerusalem. La shalom to me, la shalom, which means for peace, always for peace. Signed by Rabbi Michael Holtzman, Cantor Susan Caro, Rabbi Ashley Barrett, and Elizabeth Locker, the president of their board of trustees. Friends, here I find a profound example of a community of faith, a community imitating the highest values of its tradition, rooted and grounded in a clear work of faith, a labor of love, and a profound outward steadfastness of hope for a world of peace as God intended it, even while still in the midst of the persecution experienced in the world that is broken as it is. And even as they are imitators, witnesses of peace through this embrace of welcome, their story, like the Thessalonian story, is now shared among others this week, just as I have shared it with you this morning. And in that imitation, it offers an opportunity, an example for others to become known by their witness too. With this profound response in mind, I wonder what would happen if the Apostle Paul was here this morning at the First Presbyterian Church of Fort Collins. And might be able to reflect on our warm witness as well. And so, if you will, I've composed a letter to the Coloradans. First Colorado, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the Church of the Presbyterians of Fort Collins, a family of faith in northern Colorado. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. And peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering your Christ centered works of faith, the leadership of your elders, ministry teams, and staff, the commitment of your Sunday school teachers, the blessing of your musicians, and your open and welcoming labors of love, the pastoral care of your deacons and caring team, your smiling greeters your makers of coffee, your compassionate visitors and card writers, your diligent van drivers, your welcoming receptionists, your cooks and cleanup crews, your welcome to a gathering of people who vote differently, for their perspectives are shaped by different life experiences, and yet, and yet they pray together and break bread, sharing one baptism and one Lord. And finally, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ as you seek to address the challenges of your time, learning from community leaders and authors who expose you to new voices and stories, sending out from you habitat builders and food pantry sorters, creation care gardeners, and, 
and well, dozens more that I don't have space for here. We give thanks to God for all of you, for we know, beloved brothers and sisters, that God has chosen you because our message of the gospel, passed down from the apostles and the early church through generations of saints, reshaped and reformed through the centuries, and in this very place, passed on to you through 151 years of faithful witnesses here in your own community. This gospel came to you not in word only, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of people your ancestors in faith proved to be among you for your sake. And, and you became imitators of us, this great cloud of witnesses and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution, the challenges of your time, global wars and rumors of war, cultural and political polarization, a growing environmental crisis, myriad expressions of discrimination one against another, in spite of these things, you continue to receive the word with joy. Yes, we see joy in your life, joy inspired by the Holy Spirit so that you would become an example to all the believers in Fort Collins and in Larimer County and, yes, even in Weld County and Boulder County too. A little olive branch from last week. For they are surely God's beloved as well. Indeed, you have been a shining example to all the places where I have seen the face of Christ and felt and known the very spirit of the living God through all of you. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only among your own congregation, but in every place where your faith in God has become known as a historic downtown community-wide church, sharing your campus and stewarding your resources, not for yourselves alone, but with the vulnerable, the lonely, the addicted, the immigrant and the refugee, the learners of English, the teenagers needing homework help, and the parents needing parenting help, the promising musician who couldn't otherwise afford lessons, the grieving spouse, the family without housing, and so many more. Yes, all of this has sounded forth from you into every place so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report what kind of welcome everyone has had and has today among you. A welcome rooted in a desire to defeat divisiveness and build bridges of belonging and reconciliation. And they report how you turn to God away from the idolatries of affluence and influence of self-centered security, of imitating those who sow seeds of vanity, aggression, and distrust. For your welcome and your witness powerfully demonstrate your commitment to serve a living and true God and to wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of our anxieties and fears, the losses and grief that we inevitably experience on the journey of life together. Well, I can't exactly claim that this is truly the word of the Lord, but I do believe that this testimony of your witness this morning is true. For your works of faith, your labors of love, your steadfastness of hope are indeed witnesses and a welcome for our community and beyond. 
And all of it, let's remember, is made possible, not because of our own ability, but because together we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in response and in gratitude, together we say, thanks be to God. Amen.